Kia ora, this is Anderson's Odyssey. I'm Jacob Anderson, and my guest today is Professor Mark Orams. Uh, Mark is from Auckland University of Technology. He's a professional sailor winning the 89-90 Whitbread Round the World Yacht Race and a member of Team New Zealand's America's Cup Defence in 2000 and the 2003 team. He's also a book author and published more than 150 publications with a focus largely on marine recreation, tourism and marine conservation. He was also the founder uh, founding CEO of Blake. Kia ora, Marco. Tēnā koe, Jacob. Nice to chat to you. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, it's great, great to see you. 30 years since that 1990 famous win on Steinliger 2, the record still stands today, all six legs. Um, why do you think that record hasn't been broken? Do you think it's because the rules have changed? Do you think it was the, the teams uh, just were really cohesive, a combination of things? What, what do you, when you reflect now, what do you think that is? Well, firstly, um, 30 years, it doesn't seem that long, Jacob, and that, that sort of makes me feel old, actually. But um, yeah, it was a great privilege to be involved in that team. I, I learned an enormous amount. And when I reflect back on it, I just think how kind of fortunate I was that um, a childhood hero of, of mine and, and Sir Peter Blake um, sort of picked me from nowhere, really, to be part of one of his teams. So what an enormous privilege and opportunity that was. In terms of um, why we were so successful, I think um, the key issue there was the strength of the team that was created through the leadership style and approach of Sir Peter Blake. Um, we were not a team that had the greatest resources going into that race. Um, we weren't even the most experienced team, even though in Sir Peter Blake, we had the most experienced skipper in the race. Um, but as actually, I remember a, a press conference at the start of the race, and it was one that actually fired us up and gave us a fair bit of motivation, where Laurie Smith, uh, the English skipper of um, a very well-resourced and race pre-race favourite uh, called Rothmans out of the UK, was asked about Peter Blake and this uh, team from New Zealand sailing a yacht called Steinlager 2, um, and, uh, and whether they um, deserve to be favourites instead of him. And his response was something along the lines of, well, well Peter Blake's a very experienced and great seaman, um, a good navigator, um, but basically he's a loser. He's never won anything. He's had five goes at this round-the-world yacht race. He's never won it. Um, he's never even won a leg, and he's not going to start now. Uh, so there was this sort of um, respect for Blakey as a yachtsman, but actually, to be completely frank, uh, I think... Laurie Smith was factually correct. Um, Peter Blake had never won, he'd been to an Olympics, never won a world championship. I, to my knowledge, I don't think he'd ever won a New Zealand sailing championship, right? Um, and so for, for us on board that team, we felt an enormous sense of this is the time um, for us as a yachting nation under one of our most well-respected um, sailors to show the world what we're made of and to win the damn thing. Uh, because we'd been trying for a long time. This was, remember, this was before uh, we were able to win the America's Cup. Um, we'd had a few successes in international yachting over the years, but we were still very much the little Antipodean upstarts from the bottom of the world. Um, and the centre of the universe, as far as yachting was concerned, was the Royal Yachting Association and in Great Britain and Royal Britannia and all that sort of stuff. So, um, so... 
to come back to answering your question, the reason we were successful is that we had an amazing team of great leadership uh, and motivation that was a, a deep-seated, burning desire um, to show what we were made of as Kiwi Yachties on the world stage. And, and I guess that stemmed or, or came through after that into the, the America's Cup uh, victory and, and then the defence. When you think about uh, Peter's leadership style and you've spent time with a lot of sailors and a lot of other professionals, what, what are the key things or what are some of those things that you think have really, really stand out that, that make him um, so special? Yeah. I, I, the key thing is this word team. And that's, it's no accident that when Peter got to form his own America's Cup Challenge Syndicate, and remembering that there had been predecessors, right? New Zealand had tried an 86, 87 Fremantle with the New Zealand Challenge. There'd been the Big Boat Challenge in San Diego. Then there'd been the 92 Cup with New Zealand Challenge. And, um, and when Peter got to form his own organisation with the, the help of Alan Sefton, uh, he deliberately called it Team New Zealand, not New Zealand Challenge or something else. Team was the first word. And it was significant because that has always been Peter Blake's focus in terms of the way that he uh, sought to accomplish really significant and difficult things. Is he put together a, a group of people that could work together and form a team that was able to achieve amazing things in a synergistic way. And, and his emphasis as a leader was always that every person within that team, it didn't matter whether you were the CEO or you were the toilet cleaner, everybody had an important role to play and a contribution to make to the success of that team. So when you were in a Peter Blake-led team, you felt like your mahi, your work contribution mattered, that you had value to add. And as a consequence of that, you were prepared to do whatever it took. It wasn't just sort of something that you did within your particular job description or area of responsibility. You pitched in and did whatever it took for the benefit of the team. The team was always the, the priority. So that was the major characteristic of Sir Peter Blake's leadership style. That said, he, he certainly was the leader. It was clear in a, in a Peter Blake-led team who was um, the leader of that team. But we were all encouraged to take responsibility for contributing to uh, the team's performance and the, the objective that we'd all set ourselves. That was really empowering, really inspiring, and, um, and something that was just enormous fun to be a part of. When I think of, you know, other successful companies or teams, you know, that's often the case. It's that, that full team believing in the mission, not, um, you know, a few pieces here and there just feeling like they're a, a job. And I think when, when it's tough and, you know, when you're in challenging um, circumstances, whatever they may be, um, and, and always they are, and, and those leaders often push people even harder than they can and it lifts them up. What, what are some of the examples or some of those really challenging moments or times where you thought, uh, you know, where there may have been other um, people in, in charge that may not have been able to, to kind of rally the troops or, or get things um, moving along again or feel, feel like everyone's back together and, and back on task? 
Mm. I think there are a number of aspects of Sir Peter's leadership approach that certainly resonated with me and, and I think with New Zealanders, which is why he became so revered as a New Zealand leader, sort of alongside the, the ilks, um, the ilk of, of uh, Sir Edmund Hillary and so on, is that um, Peter was somebody who never expected members of his teams to do something he wasn't prepared to do himself. Uh, and so there was the sort of leadership by example approach. There was a, a sense of humility uh, about the way that we went about things. There's there's a place for egos, but as um, egos are a strong motivator, but they were always secondary to the, the interests and the primacy of the teams. The, the story that I tell um, most frequently to sort of illustrate how Blakey operated uh, was when we were on Steinlager 2 in, in uh, leg two of the Around the World race. And that was the longest leg uh, of the race. And it took us well over a month and, and we went deep into the Southern Ocean. And, uh, and in that situation, you're a heck of a long way from any land, certainly out of the reach of any rescue. And, um, and in situations where you're skirting the ice pack and uh, it, it's, you, you make a mistake, um, and it can cost, it can cost people's lives. Uh, and, and also because in ocean racing, you are pushing hard 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you get extremely fatigued. It's very hard to rest and you don't get a lot of it. Your nutrition's not great. You're cold, you're wet, you're tired, you're hungry. Uh, and so the battery really gets worn down. And uh, we were on watch after being through several days of really arduous uh, gale force conditions with snow squalls sort of bearing down on us and pretty regular basis and we were having to just keep the boat under control um, but sailing as fast as we could and that meant that we were having to change sail configurations quite frequently and that's very difficult you're taking multiple layers of gloves off your hands exposing your frostbitten sort of fingers to try and drag sails uh, ice covered sails down um, and you're just operating kind of in slow motion because you have so little energy and one of those sail changes, I was just completely gone. I had nothing left. Um, I was clipped on up on the foredeck, getting smashed under massive waves and, and trying to pull down this ice covered sail. And I was, um, I was so fatigued and um, frustrated. My head was in the wrong space and I was just not giving it my best effort. And I was sort of smuttering and cursing under my breath. And, um, and I remember sensing at the time uh, somebody sliding beside me and it's very difficult to tell who's who because you're dressed up with all your wet weather gear and um, snow goggles and, and hoods and so on. Um, and you're getting smashed up and down with waves. And, and, and then I sort of realized after a few, few seconds as to who it was uh, and beside me doing that work next to me, getting beaten up just like I was. And, and it was Peter Blake. Um, and that was a transformational moment for me because I, I sort of recognized that he was our leader, our skipper, uh, somebody who was doing this race for the fifth time. And he, he had come up on deck and he'd seen there was a difficult sail change going on. Um, and instead of sort of standing back like most leaders would have and started barking out orders or, um, or trying to G people up verbally, he just instinctively clipped on, uh, took his gloves off and got up there and got on with it uh, and helped out. And so 
that was huge for me. And it was an exemplar of something I learned from Peter about his leadership style. And I've tried to adopt into my own approach to leadership. And that is that it's about deeds and not words. And, and it's not that words aren't important, but what you do is far more influential, particularly in a crisis. Uh, and particularly for New Zealanders, because I think we're naturally sort of skeptical about um, people who talk a good game, but don't actually do what they say, right? Hypocrisy, we smell a mile off. Um, Peter wasn't like that at all. He, he was somebody who rolled his sleeves up and he got on with it um, when needed. And so that sort of approach to leadership is something that inspires you. It, it makes you feel like you want to give your absolute best uh, for somebody who's prepared to do the hard stuff alongside you, even though that's actually not their primary role. So that's that's the story I tell about Blakey that to this day still guides my approach to leadership. When when he obviously noticed things changing in the ocean and that kind of inspired him to start Blake Expeditions, it was this it was it was effectively the same driver wasn't it you know he, he he wanted to to do what he thought was the best and he felt compelled to kind of do that and that's where you see a lot of people as they as they go into try different things that they they carry over some of those skills how, how do you think a lot of the 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 leadership skills or things in professional sports and in your experience in sailing can get transferred into um everyday operations and, and, and other tasks? Well, I think if you're a sports woman or sportsman and you, uh, your sport brings you into close connection with nature. So that's not just sailing, um, other marine sports like surfing and, uh, and uh, racing walker armor or, or mountaineering uh, or you know, whitewater kayaking or these sorts of things uh, because natural settings are your competitive um, field or sporting ground, if you like, you come into contact with nature and you learn to respect it because the forces of nature um, influence your competitive outcome. And so having an understanding and respect for the forces of nature, using learning how to use those forces of nature, um, or at least find a way to to not have them compromise what you're trying to achieve, uh, engenders a, a form of understanding and respect. And from that, uh, often it also produces curiosity. You see a lot of things around you that make you curious. You know, why is this like this? For me, um, Aurora Australis, or um, why do you see water spouts sort of going into the sky, sucking up uh, enormous amounts of seawater in, in the doldrums? What are the doldrums? Why does that happen in the equator, uh, equatorial area? All of those sorts of things are natural, I think, uh, curiosities that arise when you are interacting with nature as a sports person. And for some of us, when we start to see changes over a period of time, as Blakey did, that curiosity and that natural kind of intimacy and respect starts to form some concern about, well, things aren't the same as they used to be. Some of the things that I saw that were really special, I don't see very often uh, anymore. And a recognition that some of the things that we are doing to our natural ecosystems and the areas that we enjoy as passionate outdoors sports people, um, are being diminished. And that that touches something in you. It, it's something that 
causes all kinds of um, emotions, outrage, anger. Uh, how can this be? I'll never forget, um, we were a long way in the South Atlantic Ocean. We we're a long way from land. And in the middle of the night on watch, saw this glow in front of us that looked like the glow of a city. But knowing that there was no land within 500 miles, you think, well, it can't be so. So what's this glow all about? And as we got closer and closer, there were dozens and dozens of squid fishing boats with really, really bright, bright lights um, over the side of these squid fishing boats. And uh, they had hundreds and hundreds of um, conveyor belts with thousands and thousands of hooks over the side under these lights that were just pulling out squid by the hundreds of thousands um, every hour and flipping them into trenches that got sluiced down. And there was a big factory ship in the middle of all these dozens and dozens of, of squid boats as we sailed through them. And I can remember thinking as we went through and we're still trying to sail fast, just seeing this and kind of my, my how can our ocean sustain this kind of exploitation? How can it survive us as a species just destroying the base of a food chain like that night after night, month after month, all over our ocean planet? And, and so that, that, that gets you. Um, it's something that makes you kind of realize that we can't keep doing this and not suffer um, cause damage that that causes living things and our living planet to suffer. And, and Blakey had the same kind of experience. For him, it was albatross. That was the thing that got him, is that the albatross, these wonderful, majestic, wandering birds that for most ocean-going yachtsmen are sort of sacred and certainly something that you admire because you're struggling to to, to stay upright in, in really outrageous conditions and then soaring alongside Side you is this magnificent bird that looks so completely relaxed in those conditions that are life-threatening for you. You can't, you can't help but have admiration for their adaptations they have for that kind of um, extreme environment that they, that they live in. And so for Blakey, like many other yachtsmen who'd seen just hundreds and hundreds of those during their early um, ocean voyages in the, the early 70s, to by the time uh, we got through to the 1990s, only seen a few a week, that, that was something that got Peter. It was something, this isn't right. Um, we, we've got to do something about this. So I think the, for, for many people who are involved in sport, that's nature-based. This is something that just is a, a natural kind of sense of we, um, we care about this area because it's important to us and then look what we're doing to it and that's not right so let's do something to try and turn that around for, for a lot of people they would never get the experience or they would never make those deep connections because they're just not spending that much time out at sea or or in in some of these um, wild environments we're seeing an increase in well i guess before before COVID and before this year, we were starting to see this increase in people going out and an increase in experiences on the ocean. There is people doing more marine recreation than, than ever before. How do, what do you think uh, is getting that balance right between getting people out experiencing these environments and, and really seeing what they're like, but, but also trying to manage um, the challenges, I guess, we expect with pressure if we get too many people out 
and, and I think it is, you know, it does vary. I mean, you and I, we've been up to, to the Kermadex and we've swum with Galapagos sharks and they seem hardly bothered when there's a few humans interacting. But of course, that's a very remote environment that has very little impact. Whereas if you had, say, a, a, a large tourist, a, a group of tourists going out on a boat and swimming with whales or, or swimming with dolphins every day, you know, it starts to have this increased um, impact on some of the behaviors and some of the, the, the animals in those systems. What, what is that balance between telling those stories and getting more people out and, and then also kind of managing those resources, do you think, or managing those mm. ecosystems? Mm. Well, you're getting to the heart now, Jacob, of my whole motivation for switching from being a professional yachtsman to, to a researcher, um, an academic, an educator, and a scholar, uh, is that you're right. I've, I've had, as a few other people have had, enormous privilege to see some very special parts of our ocean planet um, and to learn from that some of the things that are going wrong. And I feel a real sense of calling um, an ambassadorial sense, I suppose, to say, well, I've had this privilege. Uh, and so what can I do um, with those opportunities that I've been given uh, to, to help shape things for the better? And so part of my motivation for going into an academic career and, and um, doing research that led to a PhD and uh, was to look at how we can manage our interaction with nature so that it is something that is actually mutually beneficial. And, um, and in particular for me, it's been a focus about around marine recreation and marine tourism and our interaction with wildlife. Uh, because I recognize through that research and instinctively even before that, that those interactions uh, can be, yes, beneficial in some ways, um, but they can also be really detrimental. So how we make the difference between those two outcomes is a key issue for us as we continue to grow um, the numbers of people on our planet as we continue to develop new technologies and demand and opportunities to access remote and pristine marine ecosystems and to potentially impact those through our curiosity and interest. So, so that's really been a big part of my 25 year academic career and the, the students who I've been privileged to supervise have been exploring how might we more uh, sensitively and respectfully interact with marine ecosystems and marine wildlife so that those interactions actually are beneficial for us and for the targeted ecosystems and wildlife. And, and the short answer is it depends on how we go about managing those interactions. We need to use, and this is where science is so important, we need to use science to and provide us with the understanding of the sensitivities of those ecosystems and those species so that we use that knowledge to interact with those ecosystems and species in a way that is respectful and sensitive to our potential impact. When we go out there and we engage in a, an ignorant manner, in a self-serving manner, without a thought for the implications of our actions on the species that we're seeking to interact with, we can and we do cause harm. And so this is something that, that I think is a fundamental with a lot of the research that I've been involved with is, um, what kind of ways can we improve the way that we can educate operators, tourists, recreationists, people who go into the sea, so that when they engage with the sea, they do so 
without causing harm and that they learn from those experiences and hopefully are inspired and how we can in, in use those experiences to become a catalyst for behavior change for them so that they become ambassadors for the ocean, so that they make changes in the decisions they make on a day-to-day -day basis um, that benefit our ocean planet. So, so those are the things that have occupied um, a lot of my work over the last couple of decades. And uh, there are examples of things that go really well, uh, and there are other examples where the opposite's true. So part of the advocacy through publishing, um, through uh, presentations, uh, especially through the teaching that we have the privilege of being involved with at universities is directed at that kind of greater good, I hope. There's the, the immediate one that I think of uh, uh, that you hear mixed messages about is shark diving. Mm. So you hear some stories that they're doing it in a way that isn't changing the behavior or um, provoking the sharks and then there's other examples that you say you know they're throwing the burly and getting them excited and it's all it's all go what what what's your kind of understanding of those two and and, and i guess it does it, it depend on the cowboys out there just running some some operations perhaps inappropriately or, or what what is the sort of the best practice or, or is is that a, is that a good thing that we should be doing yeah, well, uh, it's very difficult to answer that in a generic sense because there are over 300 species of sharks uh, on our planet and they are incredibly diverse. And so, uh, and it's not just uh, a particular species that we need to be knowledgeable about. It's also the life stage. Um, it's also the location and the ecosystem because sharks, many of them move um, huge distances. So um, what we do in terms of the way we might interact with them uh, needs to be very much informed by research into what are the impacts of those decisions. It might be that in some circumstances, um, the, the provisioning of sharks so that we're able to get close to them and see them is something that could be beneficial. For example, if we have uh, a, a particular location where sharks are on the decline uh, through habitat degradation, uh, climate change, overfishing or whatever, that some supplemental feeding might be something that actually helps with that population's sort of maintenance or potential recovery. Conversely, it could be a situation where their behaviours change to a point where um, they no longer migrate or the food uh, that they're receiving from us is something that becomes unhealthy for them, that they lose the ability to forage and hunt for themselves, um, that they start to associate humans in the water with food and there's an increased incidence of shark attack. I mean, there, there are all kinds of potential implications for the decisions we make. So I, I think the key message out of this is that when we choose to interact with marine wildlife, whether it's in the water or from vessels or um, even potentially from, from aircraft or unmanned aerial, aerial vehicles or drones, those activities and decisions are not benign. They always have impact, right? Whether that impact is detrimental longer term or at population level, that's something that only research can really tell us. But when we do that research, we always find there's impact. And so that's an important thing to understand when some still assume that when we go out whale watching or or when we, when we watch turtles nesting on a beach, or um, when we go out and wander amongst penguin colonies and so on, that, uh, that it's inherently sustainable. 
right? It ain't necessarily so. And that's why it's so important for us to continue to support research into what does this mean when we place ourselves in their home uh, and, and we seek to take photos and we, we do all kinds of other things that we might think are, are really interesting and in some cases think are respectful. But we need to be really careful that we're not just making this assumption that this is all okay and it's going to be fine. Because there are too many examples now of that kind of assumption, one of my favorite sayings, assumptions, the mother of all stuff ups, um, that kind of assumption that this is inherently sustainable or benign is, is not true. So that's, uh, that's again a call for the importance of research and research informed decision making around how we manage these interactions. That, that example you give of the penguins, you know, especially if the Otago coast is a you know, probably a really big one. People love go, you know, go to the beach, see the penguins. And those penguins are in a serious decline, the yellow-eyed penguins. If, if you know, and, and looking forward with, you know, 30% protection being this science-based target, and if we can get some of these hope spots um, protected and we start to see improvements, that's going to become a, another really interesting question where if we do start to see life, um, bounce back and, and start to restore that balance and sharks start to come back into New Zealand waters and we start to see animals that we perhaps haven't seen. Those interactions again will, will be really interesting because even if there is you know, a, a population that's uh, going up perhaps or, or we're starting to see some, something improving that might also change some of the, the human behaviours there as well. Have you seen examples overseas where, you know, there is a lot of change and, and then we are seeing some of that kind of impact or behaviour? Yeah, well, I, I don't mean to paint a completely negative picture about uh, humans interacting with marine wildlife or other wildlife more generally, because there are plenty of good news stories. So just to come back to your point about the hoiho or yellow-eyed penguin before and their decline, uh, the reason that we're able to uh, create a level of public concern about that and support for what we might do to ensure that hoiho um, uh, action is taken to ensure hoiho can um, reverse that decline is partially because of tourists and people going to see those hoiho uh, on Otago Peninsula and elsewhere and saying, well, these are really cool animals. What an amazing um, marine bird. And, uh, and so I'm prepared to contribute to the Yellow-Eyed Penguin Trust or I'm prepared to donate some time so I can get out here and do some replanting of coastal um, native forests so that there's a, a or predator control or so there is a there's a positive side to ecotourism or wildlife based tourism when that creates a motivation for people to take action to benefit those um, targeted species and I think one of the most dramatic examples is that there is no doubt that the worldwide concern for the protection of whales and dolphins has been, con and, and actions associated with that, has been contributed to by the growth of marine mammal tourism. And people's ability to see dolphins in the wild has started to reveal to them that actually capturing them and putting them in tanks for our entertainment isn't an ethical thing to do. That when there is um, 
bycatch associated with tuna fishing, that this is not something that's acceptable to me and I'm not going to buy this particular product when I know now that it contributes to the death of hundreds of thousands of, of dolphins in the Eastern Pacific. So, so I think that tourism can be a force for good when it is uh, that catalyst for people to improve their understanding and change their decisions and behavior for the better. So that's the opportunity that, that it provides us. Um, the examples that you asked for, there are numerous examples internationally, but there are examples locally as well. So uh, internationally, what's really exciting, and this is worthwhile considering too, in terms of the growth of tourism. So whale watching, uh, commercial whale watching began in the late 1960s uh, and, and uh, certainly grew quite quickly through the 1980s. Uh, and there has been commercial whale watching on quite a large scale in places like Maui and Hawaii over the uh, humpback whale breeding season over the winter. Uh, and also migratory gray whales up the coast of Baja, California, California itself, Oregon, Washington states and so on. And those populations, as has the population of humpback whales that migrates up the east and western coast of Australia, have had a massive comeback. I mean, the recovery has been dramatic. Even in the time I've been studying those kinds of animals, they've gone from somewhere around sort of um, in the, the, the 10,000 kind of mark um, now to the hundreds of thousands. And that is alongside of a massive growth of whale watching as a commercial tourism operation in those same locations. So um, the recovery can coexist with quite intensive tourism activity, but that tourism activity needs to be managed quite carefully. So uh, it's interesting, for example, we haven't seen a similar comeback in New Zealand waters of humpback whales, and they were very frequent here um, prior to commercial whaling in the, in the 1950s and 60s, but that's, that's another story. So to come back to your point, there are examples of where we've made decisions that are uh, beneficial for nature and that some of those decisions have certainly been influenced by people's ability to go out and experience those wildlife in their natural habitats and from that to draw um, a real concern for and passion for uh, their conservation and their future. Yeah, I, I think I'm of the impression that having more people experience and learn ultimately means there's more champions when we get back to, to the mainland or, or wherever people are. And then, and then we do see much better decision-making and much better outcomes. And um, I don't think locking things up and, and keeping people away helps because then there's just no understanding and then there's poor management and we continue to see the decline or the poor management that we've seen for the last 150 odd years or, or, or whatever. Um, and, and that's a big part of what we do at Blake as you, as you know, is, you know, how we get more people out experiencing these environments, then going back into their, their communities and, and being real champions for change. And seems now more than ever, we just, we need that really good leadership in all aspects of society. What are, what do you think, uh, the, the real big challenge and the, you know this we seem to be especially now this year with with uh, with COVID it sort of seems like it's an inflection point in society and we get to really pick a brand new path in a lot of ways what do you think in the ocean space continue to be the challenges and, and the the opportunities that we 
that we can can work towards to really empower and inspire people to to get that optimism and change we need in the next 10 years mm. Yeah, just to come back to your, your initial starting point about Blake. I mean, I'm enormously proud of Blake as an organisation, and, and I, I particularly thank people like like you and Bhakti and others who've, who've made really important contributions to it. Firstly, because it's personally important to me, and one of the reasons that I felt compelled to try and do what I could to, to get the organisation off the ground to honour Blakey. Um, you know, he was tragically taken um, at a time where we desperately needed... Uh, the next Jacques Cousteau. And there's there's no doubt in my mind that that's what Blakey would have become for my children's generation, right? Um, and our ocean planet really needed somebody to champion looking after it. Uh, and that's that's the double tragedy of, of losing Blakey when he was just starting on that really important mission. Uh, so for, for all those sponsors, staff, people who've participated and contributed into the programs that Blake's run, I, I really want to just um, uh, acknowledge and say thank you for that work because it, it, it has been the best way to, to honour Peter's memory. And the, some, the thing that he would have wanted uh, is that for opportunities, especially for young people, to, to learn about the marine environment, um, to, to take action for its betterment and conservation. And that's what he dedicated the rest of his life to. And so we, we picked up that kind of mantle and tried at Blake to continue on with that as best we're able. So that, that's something I, I'm, I'm very proud of. I hope you are too. And I hope everybody else associated with Blake um, feels that sense of uh, purpose and that sense of satisfaction in doing what we can through Blake. To come to your, your second sort of part of of your question, and that's you know, what are the priorities now? What what can we do now? Um, unfortunately, the the challenge associated with the degradation of the health of our oceans uh, remains, and we have significant challenges that certainly Blakey saw and initiated thinking and concern and action about that have continued on and become greater challenges now. So those are obvious things like climate change and overfishing and ocean plastics and um, habitat degradation, nearshore sedimentation, um, you know, you, you can list off a whole bunch of them. Um, and that, that can feel quite, it can feel quite depressing, quite distressing um, and, and almost too big, right? What can we do about it um, as, a, a group of a few hundred, perhaps a few thousand people down here in New Zealand. Well, we can do our bit. We can do the best we can is what we can do. Where are the priorities? I still, I could still continue to think. When we look back on all of the things we've done which have benefited nature and the health of our planet, for me, certainly in the top three, and probably for me, number one would be our decision by very enlightened and passionate people who were champions for nature to set aside significant areas of high quality natural environments as protected areas, as parks, to say, these places are too special. We will not exploit them. We will not cut down trees or mine them. We will set them aside in perpetuity for the benefit of nature and for people to enjoy nature. So the national park movement, which began in the 1800s and continued on has become a global phenomenon, has been no doubt 
an extremely important contributor to the health and functioning of our planet and people's understanding and passion for nature. If you think about if we didn't have those significant areas of, of protection, we'd be in deep, deep trouble. What we have as an opportunity now, and I think our calling in the 21st century is to take that learning from the 19th and 20th century and apply it to the sea. And this is why marine protected areas is such an important thing for us to continue to push forward with. We've, we've got examples now that shows this works. This idea of setting aside significant areas of marine environment for protection, complete protection, no take. That is something that is smart. It is long-term absolutely an important thing for us to do, not just for the health and functioning of our planet and nature, but actually to support fisheries and other things that sustain people's food sources and livelihoods. So, so if we were to push forward with one thing for me, it would be that. Marine protected areas, significant um, marine protected areas. In the same way as we are now extremely proud of Fiordland National Park, Tongariro National Park, um, overseas, iconic places like Yosemite and Yellowstone, we need to have those places like that in the sea. We need more places um, like that in our sea. And that's where people like myself and others as sort of ocean ambassadors, I think, can continue to try and advocate for that um, and push it forward. Uh, and I, I, we're, we're moving the needle slowly, but we've got a lot more work to do. Yeah, it's, it's a very slow burn, it seems. And I think that's, that's where there's so much opportunity. You know, the amount of people that visit and enjoy Goat Island is just a small example of what large spaces restored and having crayfish back, having large snapper apex predators back in those environments then gives people a sense of hope, this, this can get better um, if we do protect these large spaces. You know, we get spillover as well outside of those spaces so we can still fish sustainably and perhaps have larger stocks than we have today. Um, the, the amazing thing, and I, I ask people this all the time, is how, you know, how much marine protection do you think there is? And, and, and they might say, oh, you know, 5, 10, 20%. And, uh, you know, we, we, we have this, this is a fantastic image and it's just 30% protection on land and less than 1% in New Zealand, less than 1%. And most people have no idea. And, and, you know, you're absolutely right. It's about having these conversations and getting people engaged and, and excited and, and knowing what protected areas can look like and, and the benefits that they offer and, and the optimistic and exciting future that we can look forward to, not this kind of, uh, overfished and, and degraded system that I guess we've become a little bit too comfortable with and our baselines shifted beyond what really is, is normal. Mm. Yeah. Um, that slow creep. I mean, here's the cool thing about, and, and I love the example of um, the Cape, Cape Rodney Okakari uh, Marine Reserve or Goat Island Marine Reserve, because it's not just been a good thing for nature and, and for recreation. It's been a good thing for business as well. If you ask the people at, at the Lee Sawmill Cafe whether the Goat Island Marine Reserve is good for them, they'd say, oh, hell yeah, 
that's where most of their business come from, right? And so hospitality, the local snorkeling and dive shops, um, even the local dairy where people are going to stop by and get a milkshake on their way home, hopefully without a plastic straw as well, by the way, we get rid of those things. Um, all of that's, that's the win-win associated with this sort of stuff is that we actually not only have something which is beneficial for nature, uh, and for people to enjoy it, it can be good for business also. So we don't, we're not saying we have to sacrifice one thing to have another, which is what many people tend to sort of um, portray protection of marine resources as, that we've got to give something up to get something else. Well, actually, we don't. We, we, we just need to think of it differently and to think longer term and beyond our own personal self-interest. I th Michael, I think that's a fantastic point and, and a great way to, to finish our, our conversation. Do you have anything you want to add or finish up with? Well, I think one of the key aspects of, that I've been focusing on and students and others in more recent times is how can we convert our interaction with nature and in many cases, this as a consequence, um, increased motivation to do something about it. Um, and change sort of attitudes. How do we convert that into significant behavior change? How do we have people who visit a marine reserve and go snorkeling and see all those wonderful fish make decisions when they go home to live differently as opposed to just, well, that was great and to slip back into the same old habits. So, so that connection between the experience of nature and then a decision to make more responsible decisions to have a lifestyle which is more respectful of nature and our impact on it. That's the key piece I think that needs uh, more attention at the moment is that conversion. Um, and that's where I think we can learn a lot from social marketing, um, from political scientists, uh, from other social scientists as well, because many of us who have a background in marine science continue to kind of point out the problem, um, continue to show We've got more evidence of problems here and degradation. We need to do something about it. And we get, I see marine scientists colleagues get increasingly frustrated about why isn't this changing when for 30 years I've told you that this habitat or this species is on its way to extinction. And I, I think that the, the naivety in that is that they're trained in a particular area and they don't understand that what we need to look at is what shapes people's behavior. And that's social science, that's economics, that's psychology and sociology. And so for me, I've found myself increasingly drawn into social sciences to think about how might we be smart about how we can use these experiences of nature to shape people's decisions and behavior. How might that manifest itself in a change in the political process or in buying habits or in, in um, the decisions people make about products that they use or don't use. So that for me is a really important next piece uh, to focus on as opposed to what I see now and I don't mean to disrespect the many colleagues who've dedicated their lives to understanding climate science and climate change. But quite frankly, we know climate change is a problem. To throw more money at understanding more intricacies of the problem doesn't solve it. We need to turn our attention to how do we solve these problems and make things better. And for me, that's about how do we shape people's behavior. So, so that um, I, I I would sort of do a um, 
a pitch, I suppose, or an advocacy for the importance of social science in contributing to positive conservation outcomes for the benefit of our planet and, and all living things who depend on it, including our species. What, yeah, one of the things I've noticed at, at the end of uh, a climate change talk, you know, that's talking about the science now, we're seeing scientists then present, you know, a, a slide of actions at the end, which never used to happen. And I wonder if in all natural sciences or um, fields where we're seeing challenges that it starts to become part of the talk at the end of the talk, they then talk about the action part, not just the nature of the problem. Yeah, and I think how we communicate that in a way that actually creates um, positive change is, is really a piece that's missing. Many of us as marine scientists or natural scientists kind of think our job's just to do the science and it's somebody else's job to implement change in the political process or wherever. But if we think back on the most influential people with regard to people's understanding of respect for nature, it's, it's not scientists, it's people like Sir David Attenborough, right? It's people like Jacques Cousteau and it's people like Peter Blake. Certainly they understand and respect scientists, but they're not scientists themselves. They're great communicators. And so those ambassadors, those ability of people to come back to the leadership point, those ability to, those who have the ability to inspire and bring others with them on the journey, to create teams of people who can um, take on projects to make a positive difference for nature. That's where I think the real challenge lies. And that's why I'm so proud of what Blake does in, in bringing together young people who have a passion for the environment and encouraging them to follow that pathway and to, to teach them about um, leadership and how you influence others and how you create change. Um, all of those things are really important investments so that we have these sorts of champions into the future um, who can continue to lead and inspire that change. And yes, it needs to be understanding and respectful and informed by science, but science of itself is not going to be enough. Um, we, we're going to need leadership to really uh, grapple with and make a difference to this significant challenge we face. Absolutely. Uh, could, I couldn't agree more. Marco, th thanks so much again uh, for taking the time to, to chat to that. It's been really great to, to have a chat with you again. Uh, no, abs absolute pleasure. Namihi nui kia katoa. Thanks, everyone. Go well.